I'm so glad you're here today. And you know, I am so grateful that God in his wisdom kept the book of Galatians for us as the people of God to walk through together over this summer. I have found this book personally refreshing. I have found a constant bathing in the wonderful grace of God to be so freeing, liberating. The, the word freedom just describes what God's desire is in the lives of people to set us free from sin, to set us free from shame, to set us free from self and selfishness, that we can truly be free. That is what this whole book up to this point has really, really been about. And so I hope as we have walked through this together throughout the summer that maybe you have had a fresh opportunity to again experience and, and enjoy and bathe in the, the wonderful grace of God. I hope so. I hope so. I know that I sure have. Now, last week, when we were together, we moved into the last uh, section of the book. And you know, God has a purpose behind liberating us. The grace of God is not merely given to us to have freedom, but that freedom that God has granted to us actually has a reason or a purpose behind it. And last week, we did look at the key verse. For freedom, Christ has set us free. And all God's people said, yes, hallelujah, thank you, Jesus. Now I want you to stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Don't come under any kind of rules or ordinances of man and live by checklist. Live in love towards the Lord. But there is a goal for our freedom. Christ did set us free, and that is expressed in verses 13 and 14. We concluded last week with these verses. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters, only you're not to use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through, what's the word? Serve one another. This is the purpose for the liberating grace of God in our lives. God's desire is that his grace be used to set us free from sin and self and that we would go on to realize the true beauty, the depths of beauty in biblical community where we are engaged in actively loving one another to the glory of God. It is beautiful, absolutely extraordinary when it is lived out. But today, we're going to understand there is an essential component if we are actually going to live in this freedom in a way that is self-sacrificing. Today, we're going to hone in on the truth that we need to learn to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit if that is ever going to be true in our experience. So right now, I want to pause, uh, ask you to join me as I pray. I have been praying throughout this week that God would use this morning in an extraordinary way in each of our lives individually and perhaps as the body collectively. Let's pray together, shall we? Oh, Father, we live our lives in real shoe leather, and we live in a really fallen world. And a lot of these truths almost seem too good to be true. Freedom, liberation from self and from sin, to really love self-sacrificingly to others. That all sounds so good. 
but it just seems to be other than our true experience. And I pray today, Father, that we would understand the unique and dynamic role that the Holy Spirit plays in outworking this in our lives. Father God, please, use your word to speak into our true situations, and may we get up and leave here today radically different than when we sat down. I ask this for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Okay, imagine, if you would. Now, if I had thought ahead a little bit more, I would have put some beautiful music on, kind of idyllic, with birds tweeting and a little cricket going on in the background. Imagine, if you will, the beauty of a true community where selfless love in Jesus' name for the glory of God was present. It would look a little bit like this. Romans 12.10, we are devoted to one another. Romans 12.16, we live in harmony with one another. We stop passing judgment on one another. We accept one another. We serve one another. We are humble and gentle and patient, bearing with one another. We're kind and we are compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, submitting to one another, encouraging one another, and building one another up, spurring one another on towards love and good deeds, always living in the harmony of the Holy Spirit. And everybody is like, oh, that would be so nice. And let me just say, that is God's desire for the people of God in community, for the child of God in a family, for the worker of Christ in his work environment, for us in our neighborhoods, that we might actually live these truths out in a very a meaningful, meaningful way. The problem is that doesn't seem to chime very well with our experience often. So as Paul now breaks open this section on the Holy Spirit, he does something very interesting. He basically bookends his discussion on the need for the dynamic and the power of the Holy Spirit and the believer's experience with verses 15 and verse 26. And what he shows us here is quite other than what we've just talked about. Notice what he says here. These are what I would call the other one another's. Verse 15, but if you, what's the word? And you, one another, watch out that you are not by one another. Oh, this is terrible stuff. Let us not become conceited, provoking, envying. Do you see what Paul just did? He, he said, this is the ideal. God's goal is love that we would experience this true love, this self-sacrificial kind of love in our lives towards one another. And yet what he is saying is that this is actually more true to, to community. It, these are more real experiences that people tend to have. But if you bite and devour one another, uh, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. I have a good friend who actually entered into my life shortly after I was saved. His name is Ben Conant. And Ben, one time, in talking to this verse, uh, uh, to me about this verse, he said, Bill, do you know what that's called? I said, no, Ben, what's he talking about? He's talking about Christian cannibalism. <laughs> and I thought to myself, you're kidding. That really happens? Bill, trust me, I've been in the church a lot of years. It happens all the time. How sad! 
Christian cannibalism. And he goes on to say, let's not be conceited, provoking one another and, and, and envying one another. And so what he is saying is this, as he opens this section up, is this. There is a titanic struggle going on in our lives for control of our lives. Either on the one hand, this will win, or on the other hand, the Holy Spirit is going to win. So what he is saying is there is a struggle that is true in the experience of every believer ultimately for control of their lives. So now he moves over to discuss the conflict, the conflict that is there. So notice what he says in verse 17. For the desires of the flesh, those are those natural inclinations and longings that are fallen nature desires, that the desires of the flesh are against or opposed to the spirit, the resident indwelling Holy Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. Just in case you didn't get that, he wants you to understand they're absolutely incompatible with one another. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, if you are a true child of God here this morning, you have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit and you have been uh, indwelt, the words that Paul just said, you know only too well. You feel them, you sense them, this is your honest-to-goodness experience. I'm one of those people who didn't grow up in the church. Uh, I actually had nothing to do with Jesus until after I met him, uh, and I didn't, I didn't have anything to do with the church or anything until after I met Christ. So up through 21 years of age, I just lived life doing whatever came naturally. And so I just want you to know that I, I lived just like everybody else lived, did basically what everybody else did. And, and while I, 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 had, um, I, I didn't necessarily like the consequences of some of the choices that I made, I certainly had no qualms about doing what I did. See, I never had no, I had no conscience or, or, or any sense that what I was doing was really wrong, even though I didn't necessarily care for the outcomes that I was getting in my life. And so I was just doing it. Everybody else was doing it. It was just natural. It was what it was. But on June the 6th, 1985, when I bent the knee to Jesus Christ and placed my faith and trust in him, I was regenerated. I was born again that day. And then all of a sudden, shortly thereafter, as I continued to do what I'd always done, all of a sudden I had this thing called guilt. That was a new experience for me. You know, up to this point, it was just, well, you do what you do, you do. Well, so what? You just move on and keep going. Big deal. Well, now it just seemed to be this horrendous deal. And I was having conscience about stuff, and I was guilt-ridden. And, and, and it was, I was just, I was miserable. I was more miserable after I trusted Christ than before I trusted Christ. Because I now had the indwelling Holy Spirit. Up until that point, it didn't matter. But now it matters because upon regeneration, the Spirit of God himself dwells within you and now gives you conscience. And so what he is talking about here is something that is unique to the believer's experience. Again, an unbeliever can, can have um, you know, uh, regrets for choices made because of the consequences that come back on them. But this is different than just the consequences. This is a sense that you're offending someone. 
There's a sense of guilt. There's a sense of, of, of conviction that, that seems to go. And this is what the Holy Spirit does. Jesus said in John chapter 16 and verse 8 that when the Holy Spirit comes, his ministry will be to convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. So those without the indwelling Holy Spirit have no battle. And that's why Paul goes on to make this statement uh, right here. He says in verse 21, he says, I have warned you before that those who do, and these are the works of the flesh, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now the word to do means habitually and without conscience. People who can live their lives habitually and without conscience in, in sinful manner, they're showing or evidencing that the Holy Spirit does not dwell in them. Romans 8 and verse 9 says this, Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So what we're talking about in this wrestling, this titanic struggle that goes on, is unique to the believer. It is something where there is this struggle for control. Now, Paul goes on and gives us, if you will, the outworkings of our fleshly desires in our lives. And then he also contrasts it now with the outworking of the Holy Spirit in our lives and relationships. I don't believe that either of the lists that we're going to look at just quickly there are, are complete, but more representative uh, of a life lived either for self, the flesh, or a life lived in the Spirit selflessly for others. So let's kind of unpack these two lists, if you will. The works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. So the works of the flesh, again, our fleshly depraved nature. The works of the flesh are evident. They're obvious. I mean, pick up a newspaper. Look, look across the road. Look, look, look next door. I mean, the works of the flesh are obvious. And the first three that he gives are sexual in nature. Uh, he says sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. Uh, the word sexual immorality is the Greek word pornea. It is the word that we get pornography from. This is obvious. This is evident. Particularly in our day and age, we live in a hypersexualized culture today. So the works of the flesh are evident. Pornea. Uh, impurity has to, the idea of something that is unclean or dirty, something that is filthy. And you know that feeling. You know that feeling when you've, you've done something, you've experienced something, you've chosen a course of action, and when you're done, you just feel dirty. That's what he's talking about. Sensuality refers to uncontrolled passion. Uh, you just do it. You can't stop yourself. There's, there's, uh, you're over-invested in it, and you can't pull back. So these are the works of the flesh. He, he outlines these sexual ones first. The next two are what we would call um, basically things that take the place of God in our lives. Things that take the place of God in our lives. Idolatry and sorcery. Uh, this is anything that takes the place, number one place in our lives. God might be in the mix, but he's not first. And anytime God's not first, you have an idol in your life. And the idol of your life could be your job. Uh, we live for our jobs, and our jobs are our lives. If that's the case, then Christ is not your life. That makes your job a form of idolatry. 
it goes on to say, you know, things like things, you know, the, 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 car, the boat, the vacation, the car, whatever it may be, the bigger house, the thing. The, the desire for things becomes the primary goal of your life, and most of your time and energy are invested in this rather than Christ, who is to be our lives. Maybe even a relationship. It could be a spouse. It could be children. They're in our lives, and we love and we care about them. But any time a spouse or a child takes the primary focus of our lives and God is secondary, that child or that spouse turns into an idol. And that's an unhealthy place for that person to be in our lives. So the first three deal with sexual sins. The next two deal with um, things that have a tendency to take God's place in our lives. But he saves the longest part of the list. The, the most um, things he enumerates next, ten things, are all what we would call social sins of selfishness. Social sins of selfishness. Say that with me. Social sins of selfishness. Now, say it three times fast. Social sins of selfishness. Social sins of selfishness. Social sins of selfishness. <laughs> How'd you do? You did it? All right. So, yeah. So, these are what we would call social sins of selfishness. Enmity. Strife. Jealousy. Fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envying, drunkenness, orgies. And he adds this word, things like these. Again, this is only representative uh, of, of all the desires and the actions of our carnal nature. And the reality is this. When these things have a tendency to dominate, in our lives, when these things have a tendency to, to, to become prominent in our lives, what happens is it becomes destructive. Destructive to our character, destructive to our relationships. These things can even become destructive to our health. Uh, these things actually kill people. So what he is trying to do is he's trying to enumerate things that are ultimately destructive. And these are called the natural desires or inclination of our fallen nature, our depraved nature. But now he goes on to contrast this with what he refers to as the fruit of the Spirit. Now notice what he says. The fruit of the Spirit is love. The word fruit is singular. The, the, the uh, verb there is, connects the singular fruit to the word love. And I think you can actually put a full colon after the word love because the next things that follow actually I think are meant to be descriptive of what it means to self-sacrificially love other people. I don't think these are necessarily individual qualities that everybody's meant to manifest, but I really think they're all outworkings of what true love in community is meant to look like. So this love is evidenced towards others as joy. Joy. Giving the gift to people of joy. Have you ever walked up to somebody, and when you walk away, you are kind of bouncing? That person got you going. That person was great. That person was fun. That person was awesome. And you're like, I just feel energized. I just feel happy. How many of you like people like that? How many of you like to know people like that? Uh, raise your hand if you are like that. You're going to have a lot of people that want to walk up to you. Yes, you are like that, David. Awesome. You see, this is what we should be giving people. This is what love means. It means that when they walk away from us, there's a sense of joy in them. We're also, we should also be those who are peacemakers, 
Those who, when people are in our presence, we're seeking to work peace in their lives. The word patience is, is an English rendering, but actually the King James way of rendering it is probably a better way. The King James uses the word long-suffering. Long-suffering, which is actually the way the Greek word is written. It is marco long fume, long-heated. In other words, it takes you a long time before you explode. It's long-fused, long-fused. You know, somebody lights your fuse, you know what I'm talking about? And it's burning, it's burning, it's burning, it's burning, and some of us have short fuses, and away we go. Marco Thume means you just keep pulling out more fuse. You just keep pulling out more fuse, and you just never quite go off. And so in relationships, the love that the Holy Spirit wants us to manifest to others is Marco Thume, being long-suffering with people. We're to show them kindness and goodness. We are to be faithful to them, gentle with them. And the word self-control has the idea that we, we are restrained with them. And so this is what Paul is talking about. It is the conflict that many of us here today uh, who have a relationship with Jesus Christ are terribly aware of. There is a baser side to us that longs for those things that ultimately create problems in our hearts, our minds, our lives, and our relationships. And the Holy Spirit's desire is that that be radically different. Okay, thank you, Pastor Bill. That was a lovely explanation of the passage. But I'm sitting here today and I'm wrestling with pornography. It, 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 it captures my mind. It fills my attention. I find myself going back to it over and over again. Pastor Bill, I really need help in this part of my life. It is disrupting my character. I'm afraid my family might find out. And ultimately, I'm afraid it will harm the relationships in my life. Pastor Bill, help me. Help me. You know, Pastor Bill, can, can you help me? My mouth is always getting me in trouble. I have this problem of gossip. And every time I turn around, the friendships that I thought I have are now broken. People are walking away from me. People don't want to be near me because for some reason, I have this problem of talking about people. Pastor Bill, I have a problem with anger. I, I, I just blow up. Things get me so mad. And I can't control it. Pastor Bill, help me. Help me. I don't want the relationships in my life to continue to fracture and splinter. I don't want to be the person I seem to be becoming. Help me. Help me. Yeah, yeah. I'm talking to you. I'm talking right to where you live your life. I'm speaking right into where your life rubs up against the lives of others. See, this is what the work of the Holy Spirit is meant to do. It's not just to give us lovely character qualities. It's meant to make our relationships better. It's meant to make our churches stronger. It's meant to make our families more meaningful and powerful. This is what God's up to. This is why we've been set free. It is that the relationships in our lives would be radically different than just everybody else's relationships. 
So what do we do? What do we do? I'm going to take the remainder of our time this morning, and I'm going to speak very practically to you. Because the scriptures allow me to go there. And after the week that I've had and the people I've dealt with and the experiences that are going on in the lives of some of the folks here as members, uh, we need to have a real talk, a real frank talk about our lives and how the Holy Spirit is meant to have control and how that even happens. So Paul goes on to give us the key to overcoming the desires of the flesh, the key to the manifestation of the fruit of love in its outworking in our lives and our relationships. And so Paul gives us the key, if you will, to victory, what Christ has set us free from, and how do we experience that. And so Paul says this. In verse 16, Paul says this, But I say to you, and today, I stand up here and I say to you, walk in the Spirit, walk by the Spirit, and you will not. The emphasis there in the original language is, you will know, no, not at all gratify the desires of the flesh. Paul is saying that we have something available to us in a very tangible, very real way that can radically transform our lives. And this person is the indwelling Holy Spirit. And so he's going to go on and give us the, how this actually works, how this actually works in our lives. And I want to walk through this, and I want to be very, very uh, straight up with you. How many of you have an elastic this morning? Good. Good. I want you to take your elastic as we get ready to move into this section. I want you to take it and I want you to twist it in two. And I want you to have it so it's doubled up. And then I want you to take your fingers and I want you to put them around like that. Okay? So put it on the end of your fingers, doubled up. And I want you to extend your fingers apart as far as you can. Can you do that? Okay? As far as you can, further apart. Now hold that. What Paul is telling us in this section, it's not that hard, folks. <laughs> what Paul is telling us in this section is that the Holy Spirit can do in us which we cannot do for ourselves by simply trying harder. That's exactly what he's talking about. Now, he actually breaks it out in this way. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Now, what he is doing is he's telling us how to do this. How is it that we're going to experience this, this new life, this transformation, this, 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 this freedom from the passions of the flesh that are so controlling in our lives? Are you, are, are you doing this? Are you doing this? Spread them further apart. Come on, push it, push it a little further. Okay, keep holding it for me. Don't, don't, don't let them come together. Okay. And so the first thing he says is this, and these will be the practical walkaways for our time together this morning. The first thing he says is this by way of application. He's talking about repentance. Repentance. You, as a child of God, have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. 
What he is saying here is this. We are the agents of crucifixion, not just the objects. Paul already said in Galatians 2.20 that we have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live in the flesh by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So what he is saying is this, as an ongoing outworking of Christ dying for us and we died with him, as an ongoing outworking of that crucifixion, today we are to actively deal with our sinful desires and selfishness by renouncing them. Renouncing them, repudiating them, rejecting and abandoning these things. We are to have nothing to do with those things. So we are to renounce them, and I believe we are to cut ourselves off from the sources that motivate these things in our lives, and we are to turn completely from them. So what Paul is saying is this. We have to have such a clean break from the sin of selfish focus that we are continually dead to it. Now, Jesus used some very graphic uh, expressions to talk about this kind of an action. Are you still doing this? Okay, stretch it a little further, a little further. Okay, did you double it up? Don't forget to double it up. Okay, keep stretching it. Jesus used words like this. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body goes to hell. Now, Jesus is not saying pluck out your eye and cut off your hand because they're merely vehicles for the reality of your heart. So even cutting those off won't remove the desires. But what he is saying is this. We need to have an absolutely drastic, a decisive action when it comes to sin in our lives. We aren't to play with it. We are to manage it. This is how most of our lives are lived. You got this? Okay, open it up wider, 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 wider. This is how we, we, we tend to live our lives. We practice something called sin management. Yeah, yeah. So what happens is things get rather acute in our lives. Things kind of, kind of get a little out of hand, our temper, our tongue, our, our desire for lust. And, and so what we do is, is we try. We try really hard. And what we do is we, we end up exercising lots of self-effort and, 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 and we get a strong sense of self-will and we're pushing and we're pushing and we're desiring for change. And you know what? We can modify our behavior for a season. But after a while, our strength weakens. And you've noticed your fingers have been kind of moving toward one another in the last few minutes, haven't they? And this is exactly what happens when we seek to do sin management. All we end up doing is modifying our behavior for a season. And the next thing you know, we're right back to where we started. Oh, but we do it again. Oh, I can do better this time. I know I can. And for a while, you're doing really well. And all of a sudden, your strength gets weak and you start to give in. And the next thing you know, you're right back to where you were again. This is what we do. We live in this sin management mode. And, you know, so far so good, Bill, but I'm, I'm, I'm getting a little weak in the long run. Sin is not something to be managed. Sin is not something to be toyed with. Sin is something that we're supposed to crucify. We are supposed to have a complete break. We are supposed to put it to death. 
And so we need to take drastic action, not merely modified uh, action. And so let's put this kind of in very practical terms. So let's say you're sitting here today. Oh, by the way, you can put this down now. Okay, thank you. The point is, eventually, your fingertips will touch again. You just happen to be stronger than the person next to you, but we're all weak, terribly weak, particularly in this area that has to do with our flesh. So if you have a problem today with the issue of lust, what does it mean to take drastic action? What does it mean to take decisive action? Well, uh, it means you get rid of your computer. Oh, Pastor Bill, that's, that's ridiculous. That's stupid. Well, so is pulling out your eye and cutting off your hand. But his point is this. You don't just play with it. You don't just manage it. So what I would recommend, if you can't live without your computer, and of course we can't today, we can't live without our cell phones either. So what I would recommend is this. If you have a real struggle in this area of your life, that you go to a place called CovenantEyes.com. CovenantEyes.com. Plug in your name and email. They will let you download a 46-page PDF document that will tell you the five things that pornography will do to destroy your life. And they will show you five things as a believer in Jesus Christ that you can do to find transformation for this area, area of your life. So if you really have struggles in this area, what you ultimately need is accountability. What we ultimately need is to take what we're doing in the dark and bring it into the light. So long as it's in the dark, it has power and it grows. But when it comes to the light, and other people know, and we can help one another, we find freedom. We find release from these things. So if you have a chronic problem, or perhaps you have an acute problem in this area right now, I just want to let you know that right alongside our property here is another church, Good Shepherd Presbyterian, right over here. Monday night, Thursday nights, 7.30, they have what's called an SA group. It is a sexual addiction group. They meet every week, twice a week over here, and there are opportunities for you to take drastic action to come together with other people who are wrestling with the same thing and find help, find healing in these areas. And you know, if we don't, ultimately it transforms our character and it destroys our relationships. So these are drastic opportunities for you to get help. Alcohol, drugs, Pastor Bill, help. I'm really having a problem with prescription drugs. Pastor Bill, help. Alcohol seems to be something I can't live without in my life. Get help. Get help. There are NA, narcotics groups, all over the area, and there's an AA group that meets on this property every Wednesday night. And they meet all around our community every week because so many people struggle with this. Just because you say, I know Jesus, doesn't mean you don't struggle. Amen? We struggle more because the Holy Spirit's in there causing us to want to change. It's not just consequences anymore that matter in our lives. It's our relationship with Jesus that feels threatened. You know, Paul said in, in Psalm 51, or uh, David said in Psalm 51, he said, Lord, against you, you, and you only have I sinned. Well, wait a minute, David. You, you impregnated a woman, and you put her husband forward in battle, and she, he died. Against God you sinned? You see, if we're only worried about the consequences, there'll be no real transformation in our lives. But when we understand that our sin ultimately affects our relationship with God, who we love, and it offends him, and it hurts him, at that point, we're willing to really make the strides to make a difference. 
So if you struggle with alcohol or drugs, there are NA and AA groups everywhere. I want to encourage you to check out a Celebrate Recovery group. Uh, they meet locally. Uh, they are a Christian 10-step, uh, 12-step uh, program. They're very good. They're very well done. Again, if you keep it quiet, it will master you. If you keep it in the dark, it grows. If you expose it to the light and you get help, it will get better. Uh, James chapter 5 tells us this wonderful truth. If you confess your sins to one another and pray for one another, you will be healed. You see, we're good with praying to God for forgiveness, but you're not healing. You're not getting any better. It only gets better when you start confessing your sins to other people who can come alongside you and encourage you and hold you accountable to walk the Christ life together. Lust, get help. Alcohol, drugs, get help. Anger, a critical tongue. Change your circle of friends. Critical spirits find critical spirits and love to whisper in corners to each other, and they love to keep each other going. That's just how that works. And so I want to encourage you that if you recognize that you have a critical tongue or you're given to anger, then you need to change some things in your life because it's not working what you're doing. And so maybe you need to change your viewing habits. You know, that, that Fox News thing. When I turn that up, I'm so mad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're mad because you're filling your heart and your mind with these things. What I would recommend is this. Change your viewing habits, turn off Fox News, and go next door and help your neighbor. I guarantee you, I guarantee you, that'll start to change you. You see, what we feed ourselves ultimately comes out in our hearts and in our lives. And so I want to encourage you that you, you volunteer at a soup kitchen or you help in a homeless shelter. Don't just listen to the garbage of our world. There's a lot of it. Get involved in making a difference about some of it. And that'll radically change the way you think. Or maybe you just need a little negative reinforcement. So every time, oop, where'd it go? Every time um, you find yourself being critical and the Holy Spirit says, there you go again. Shame on you. There you go again. You get conviction about this, a little guilt about this. I want you to take this elastic and put it on your wrist and go like that. Ow. Oh, I shouldn't have done that. Ow. Oh, okay, I shouldn't have done that. You see, if we start associating pain with something wrong, all of a sudden what's wrong is now painful and we don't want it in our lives anymore. But somehow you need to start saying, this is just not right. This is wrong. And I need to start dealing with this critter in my life. So start doing some negative reinforcements. That, Lo, that's wrong. Associate pain with wrong. Cut off your hand. Gouge out your eye. Take drastic action is what Jesus is saying. I struggle with, a, with not having a biblical mindset. I struggle with not having a biblical mindset. Well, all I can say is this. If you have a trouble with envying or being consumed by things or being a bigot or a chauvinist or whatever you want to call it, if you really struggle with that stuff, stop feeding your mind a steady diet of the culture's way of thinking. Seriously. Seriously. You know, we have these things, and people post them on Facebook all the time. I'm having a Netflix marathon of the latest soap opera. I'm having a Netflix marathon of the latest sitcom. I'm having a Netflix marathon of the latest whatever. Well, let me ask you, when was the last time you had a Word of God marathon? You see, we end up becoming what we consume. And we wonder why we think the way we do. We wonder why God's not transforming our lives. That's because we are dumping garbage in, and garbage comes out. 
Let me just share with you a truth, and I don't know that everybody knows this, but I'm going to share it with you. Um, God gives us a biblical filter as to how, to how to take information into our lives. Now, what I think most people think is this. God puts the biblical filter in here, so as all the garbage comes in, I can sort it out good garbage. Good garbage. No, no, no. No, that's not how that filter is meant to work. The filter is out here. And so what's garbage, you don't ever put in here. You only let through and into your heart and into your mind the things that God ultimately says will benefit you and grow you and bless you. Again, uh, Philippians, talking about anxiety. Are you an anxious person? It could be bad what you feed yourself. It says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's anything of excellence, if there's anything that's worthy of praise, I want you to think about these things. That's a biblical filter out here that says that if it's R-rated or it's a bunch of crap, sorry, I use that word in church. I used the word, what's the word Paul used last week? I won't go there. But if it's junk, if it's junk, don't, don't watch it. Don't listen to it. Don't let it in saying, oh, I'm an adult. It's no big deal for me. I can sort it all out. Well, good for you. But once it's in, it's in. It's in. And it has a way of coming out. The filter is out here. The Bible says this in Romans 8. For those who live according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For the, to set the mind on the flesh is simply death. But to set your mind on the Spirit is life and peace. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God and it cannot please God. So I'm wrestling, Pastor Bill. I've got all this stuff going on in my life, Pastor Bill. I've got this anger. I've got these, this gossip. I have broken relationships in my past that are a result of my saying things that I shouldn't or I got angry about something or I really struggle with lust or, or illicit relationships, Pastor Bill. What do I do? Repent. Repent. Which simply means this, renounce it, repudiate it, reject it, abandon it, cut off the sources that motivate it, and turn from it. This is what it means to begin to walk in the Spirit. So that's just half of it. Now he talks about this next aspect of surrender. Surrender. He says, if we live by the Spirit, repentance and surrender are two, two sides of the same coin. You cannot find release from sin unless you fully let it go by renouncing it and turning from it. And you cannot expect God the Holy Spirit to change you unless you give full control over to him. I'm afraid too many of us have believed in Jesus. The Holy Spirit has come into our lives, and our lives are nothing but this series of failures, failures, failures. I'm discouraged, and I'm depressed, and I feel helpless in my Christian walk. Have you ever asked God to fill you with the Holy Spirit? Have you ever said, God, I want to let go of this sin. I want you to have complete control. That's what it means to be filled by the Spirit of God. Come in. Take full possession of your child. Guide and lead my life. Somebody has said, there is no way that a human being can ever come to God that does not involve surrender. An acknowledgement of God's sovereignty and ownership, not only over his creation, but over us. We have been bought with a price. Therefore, we have to glorify God with our bodies which belong to him. 
Jesus, Jesus did not come into our lives to rearrange the outside of our lives the way we want. He came into our lives to rearrange the inside of our lives the way that he wants. That's what that means. If we're ever going to win the war for our hearts and our minds and our lives, it requires repentance of sin and turning to Christ. Surrender is asking him to have full, full control. So repentance and surrender, repentance and surrender, repentance and surrender. And that brings us to what it means to live a life of repentance and surrender. It is a life of dependence. Keep in step with the Holy Spirit. The victorious Christian life is a series of new beginnings. The victorious Christian life is a series of new beginnings. Every day we are to repent of that thought, that heart attitude, that, that thing that I said, that thing I want to do. Repent and, and, and surrender back to the Lord. Repent of this thing, surrender. This is our lives as a Christian. Repent and surrender. Repent and surrender. What am I doing? And this is how we walk. Our whole walk as a Christian is one of repentance, turning from that which we know displeases the Lord and surrendering ourselves afresh and anew to the Lord. The speed of obedience will determine how quickly you grow. This is what it's about. It is a life of dependence upon the Holy Spirit to lead us and to guide us and to quickly acknowledge those things that we know aren't pleasing to Him. It is a life of keeping short accounts with God, choosing to live to the dictates of the Holy Spirit. Now, what does that mean practically? Let me give you a few things and then we'll finish up. Here we go. Practically, it is choosing. Now, notice I'm putting this in here specifically for us to make a choice because it's up to us to make a choice. Choosing to spend time in God's Word every day. Choosing to spend time in God's Word every day. That's what the Spirit of God desires. So we walk in accordance with the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to bring transformation into our lives. We choose every day to spend focused time in prayer. We choose this. We choose to connect weekly with the people of God, fellow strugglers seeking to live for God in worship and in small groups for encouragement and accountability. We choose this. We choose to seek out and actively love and help others, turning our focus off ourselves and onto the needs of others. This is so key to growing into Christ-likeness. Jesus didn't come for his own sake. He came for ours. We don't live our lives for ourselves. We live them for others, others, others in Jesus' name. Let me just summarize like this. Whichever nature you feed will grow. Whichever nature you feed will grow. Whichever nature you starve will die. Whichever nature you starve will die. Paul said this in Ephesians. Throw off your old sinful habits and former way of life. That which is corrupted by lust and deception is basically the idea of taking off a garment and casting it aside into a pile. Instead, now let the Holy Spirit renew your thoughts and your attitudes. Put on the, your new attitude created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Friends, you can change your historical track record. You're sitting here today saying, I've heard it all before, Pastor Bill. I've heard it all before. I've tried, and I've tried, and I've tried. And every time I try, I wind up back at the same place. You see, Pastor Bill, I've got a whole history behind me that tells me I can't. I can't 
do what you're saying God wants to do in my life. And I want you to know this. While that may be your past, it does not have to be your future. It does not have to be where you end up living because the one who overcame death and hell lives in you and he has the power of the resurrection to bring new life into your life. While sin remains, it need not reign in your life. I'm going to close with a, a short video and after that we're going to have a baptism. Repent. Surrender. And walk in daily dependence. If you do, your life will change. It won't happen overnight, but it will change.
you get nothing else out of this morning, get this. Your past performance is no indicator of future results because of the grace of God. Have hope today, but turn to the body of Christ for healing. That's what it means to love and serve one another. I'm going to pray. We're going to put the screen up. We're going to have a baptism. But I just want to say this. If you've got one of our uh, bulletins today, on there is a phone number for Pastor Bill Walker. It is my cell phone. And if you are to call me or text me, apart from this morning, saying, Pastor Bill, I need help, I will get back to you, and I will help connect you into a place that you will find healing. Do not let this go undealt with in your life, because it leads to death. Let's pray. Father God, I just want to say thank you for being so frank and honest with us about the reality of life. We live it every day, we feel it every day, and yet we can walk through these doors and pretend like everything's okay. Lord God, may this place never be a sanctuary for saints, but may this place truly be, truly be a hospital for the hurting. May this really be a, a place where we can find community, where we can actually be frank and honest and transparent with one another about the struggles that we have. How else are we gonna be like Jesus? Help us, Father, to become real for your sake. Thank you. In Christ's name.